Good afternoon. Welcome back. Um, so I'm going to continue roughly where I left off from this morning. Let me just give you a quick summary of what we said then to uh, get everything in place. So I explained what I call consequential libertarianism. We choose policies based on the broad range of their consequences. That's pretty bland at some level. Almost everyone agrees, and yet there are huge differences amongst people who would subscribe to that general perspective on exactly what policies should be. So why is there so much disagreement if the approach is the same? There are two broad categories. People could disagree about what the actual factual impacts of policies would be on costs, on out health outcomes, drug use outcomes, also economic efficiency, and so on. Or they might or might not agree on all the factual claims, the things called positive economics, what happens if you do X, but disagree on whether the, which things are important, which ones are positives or negatives even, and certainly which ones should get more weight. In very, very broad terms, people seem to disagree about whether you should care about efficiency, maximizing the size of the economic pie, or fairness, distributing the economic pie in some way that people think is desirable. So this afternoon, I'm going to do two things. The first is to go in more depth into the idea that interventions have this broad range of bad consequences. Partially, they often don't do even what they are attempting to do, even what they state they are going to do. Okay, so if that's the case, you don't have to argue very much about the overall policy. And then in addition, they have all these unintended consequences, unintended consequences. I talked about those with lots of examples this morning. This afternoon, I want to try to put those more into categories as a way of persuading you that the scope for unintended consequences is huge. It's everywhere. No matter what policy you think of, it's likely to have two, three, five of the different categories of unintended consequences that I'll outline in a couple minutes. So these are sort of inevitable, which doesn't absolutely prove that all interventions are undesirable, but it certainly creates a huge amount of caution to create some great skepticism about the value of the interventions. Then I want to argue that the differences in people's values, okay, are really not crucial to deciding which policies we want. Whether you think that the goal is maximizing output, maximizing economic efficiency, or you want to think in terms of liberty, or you want to think in terms of some notion of equity, which I will, for simplicity and, and brevity, boil down to uh, an equal or even distribution of income, no matter which of those perspectives you take, you should actually still come out with the conclusion that smaller government is best. So, very quick outline. We'll talk about the consequences. I'll briefly talk about whether we should care about economic efficiency or care about liberty. You'll see why that's brief in a little bit. And then the last roughly sort of third or half the time about uh, efficiency versus equity. So what are all the consequences of interventions? Well, one consequence is many of them don't work, or at least don't work very much, don't do that much to accomplish their stated goals. Okay? If that's the case, if a policy which is supposed to cause X to go down doesn't cause X to go down, and it has any cost whatsoever, then of course it's a silly policy. So we wouldn't have to argue about the goals or the trade-offs or anything like that for policies which have that condition. And I want to illustrate that many policies, in fact, seem to have limited or no efficacy in accomplishing their stated goals. So here's an initial example. The red line is the homicide rate in the United States from uh, the mid-1980s to roughly the present. You remember that the U.S. had this huge boom in crime in the 1980s related to uh, the introduction of crack. 
uh, in my view, not in any way, shape, or form due to crack per se, but due to the government's response to the existence of crack. But for whatever reason, homicide rate clearly goes down pretty consistently over that period from a rate that made us a big outlier amongst the rich developed countries to a rate that's still high relative to those countries, but not nearly so much. The blue line is the percentage of the population year by year living in um, states that have concealed carry laws. So as background, concealed carry laws were started to be adopted in the early 80s in the US, and they said that police officers or sheriffs or whoever was responsible for giving people gun permits shall issue or must issue okay, a license to anyone meeting certain conditions. And in many of the states that adopted those laws, the conditions were very simple. Basically, you had to be 21. You had to not be a felon, convicted felon and things like that. And so most people, by default, were supposed to be given uh, these concealed carry permits. Okay? Now, economists, most famously John Lott, argue that increased concealed carry should reduce crime okay, because okay, if criminals think that most people are armed walking down the street or many people have guns in their homes or even some people have guns in their homes, they'll hesitate to break into your home or attack you on the street because you might shoot back. Okay? Whereas the pro-gun control lobby, they of course argued that there would be blood on the street, that the homicide rate would skyrocket, that it would be catastrophic to expand concealed carry. So what you can see is, of course, only a partial correlation. I'm not controlling for the 8 million other things one should control for in analyzing this question. But it shows exactly the opposite of the claim made by the gun control advocates for more gun control, that is, against concealed carry. Because in fact, more and more states, more and more of the population, and a huge increase from something like 10% to 70 or 80%, now lives in a concealed carry state where people can carry concealed legally, and yet the homicide rate has done nothing but go down okay, over that period. So that's an example, but it illustrates many policies which claim to have these good effects. Of course, we would all like to have a lower homicide rate, I would, I would guess. Okay? So there was nothing so objectionable about the goal, okay? but okay, the claim objecting to concealed carry was simply not convincing. It doesn't seem to have been right. This graph shows you um, also a percentage of the population. It shows you in the red line the percent of the population living in a state with an MLDA, a minimum legal drinking age, okay, of 21. Okay? And going back to the mid-60s, okay, looking at the scale on the right, you can see that about sort of 60% of the country lived in an MLD-21 state. But then that number went down, partially because of the adoption of the, I'm blanking on, the amendment that gave 18-year-olds the right to vote. Okay, so there was a wave of reaction to that and thinking, well, if 18-year-olds can vote, maybe we should lower our drinking ages from 21 down to 18. So the percentage okay, goes down through the 60s and sort of mid-70s. Then okay, a few states reversed their policies, and in 1984, okay, Mr. Not-So-Libertarian Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, signs the Federal Uniform Drinking Age Act, which imposes, in effect, imposes a minimum legal drinking age of 21 on every state. Didn't exactly impose it. It threatened to withhold high-rate funds, but it comes out to the same thing. So you can see there's a lot of variation in how much of the country was covered by an 18 versus a 21-year-old drinking age. The blue line is traffic fatalities. Okay? and per uh, 100 million vehicle miles traveled. And what that does is it just goes down. In fact, if you had data farther back, it keeps going down and down and down. Okay? For whatever reasons, the history of traffic safety in the US is it just gets better and better and better. 
Maybe it's seat belts, maybe it's airbags, maybe it's better cars, but whatever it is, it's improved. Comparing the relation between those two lines, part of the period, okay, we're having more youth driving and yet, and traffic fatalities are going down. Okay, during part of the period, we're having fewer uh, 18 to 20 year olds able to drive and the traffic fatality rate is going down. And for the second half of the sample, there's no change in the number of 18 to 20 year olds who can legally purchase alcohol, okay, and the traffic fatality rate keeps going down. So there's no correlation. There's no evidence that the higher minimum legal drinking age actually reduced auto fatalities. Okay. Couple more examples, just to sort of hammer home the point. There are billions more we could look at, but some of these, these are sort of interesting, suggestive. This graph is life expectancy at birth from 1900 to the present. The blue line is total, the gray is uh, female, which is much higher than male, sorry to say for many of us in the audience, um, and the red line is the male. And you can see that the expect life expectancy just keeps going up through the entire century, interrupted by a few noticeable things. Okay, in uh, 1918, that big downward spike toward the beginning of the sample, you might think that's World War I. That's part of it, but it's also the uh, Spanish flu epidemic, 1918. Okay? And then mainly it's fairly smooth. The truth is probably even smoother than that graph, but the data aren't as good until you get to the post-war period. And it just keeps going up and up and up and up. Now, what's happened to government provision of health care over this period? Okay? Well, until 1966, it was zero. Okay? And then it's gone up dramatically. But if we put that line in there, we would again conclude there was no correlation okay, between the rate of growth of life expectancy and government provision of health insurance. This goes back to the comment we had earlier this morning that it's actually amazingly hard to demonstrate that more health care leads to better health. Apologies to the doctors in the audience. Okay? Um, and so we see dramatic improvements in health of the US population. Okay? but no evidence that it's due to government provision of healthcare. And the next graph just makes the same point in a slightly different way. This is infant mortality. Okay? It goes down, it goes down consistently. It's sort of really impressive and fantastic that infant mortality has declined so much, but there's no evidence that it correlates with okay, government provision of healthcare, in particular, say, with Medicaid, which isn't even introduced until 1966, about two-thirds of the way through that sample, and isn't providing significant amounts of funding until several years after that. Likewise, there are formal papers that all the time evaluate government programs, papers by economists, other social sciences. Some of them find that some of these programs do do what they are trying to do, at least to some degree. Whether they pass a cost-benefit test is, of course, another question. But many of them find basically no effects okay, on the desired outcome, on the stated goal of the policy. On Medicare in particular, as a nice paper by an economist at MIT okay, that looks at whether a senior 65 and older life expectancy improved as a result of Medicare and finds absolutely zero impact. Okay? So lots and lots of policies just don't do what they say they're supposed to do. Now we want to talk about okay, if these policies are effective at least somewhat in accomplishing their stated goal, and we're setting aside whether we agree with those stated goals or not, but what other unintended consequences do they have? And I want to suggest that there's a whole set of categories that's useful to think about, and that not every single policy, but many policies will have some negative effects in each of these categories, and that, I hope, helps persuade you that there's just enormous scope for bad side effects of intervention. So taxes is a very simple, straightforward one, but since I'm an economist, I can't not mention taxes. All interventions require expenditure, 
even small government agencies like, say, the FTC, whose budget might only be a few hundred million dollars, which is rounding error on rounding error on rounding error in Washington, D.C., okay, that's still some amount of money. That means you have to collect the taxes to pay for that. And when you tax economic activity, you distort people's decisions and make the economy less efficient. Okay? It doesn't matter what kind of tax you use, whether it's on a specific good like gasoline, whether it's on income, whether it's on corporate income or whatever, you're going to have negative effects on the economy. And the magnitude of those effects appears to be quite large based on the existing evidence. There are also compliance costs. Those of you who are old enough, maybe two-thirds of you, to have had to pay taxes so far know that you either shell out a lot of money to H&R Block or to your accountant, or you wrestle with TurboTax you know, interminably. It takes a lot of time to fill out your taxes. And estimates of just that cost of the tax system are the equivalent of billions and billions of dollars per year. Okay? So one aspect, one unintended consequence, one negative of any government policy is the extra taxes. And for some policies, like Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, those distortions from taxes are large because the expenditure on those policies are large. Okay. Second general category is that many policies prevent Pareto improving exchange. Pareto improving means a situation where a trade makes one person better off without making anyone else worse off. And economists generally assume that if that happens, there's no reason for policy to interfere because somebody's happier and no one else is less happy. Of course, that gets economists into trouble because that thinking leads you to the following conclusion. If you're in line to buy bagels on a Sunday morning and you're back of a long line, 20, 30 people, okay, and you're in a hurry, you go up to the first person in the line and you say, you know what, I'll give you 20 bucks to trade place with me in line. I get to go to the front and you go all the way to the back. Now that's a Pareto improving exchange. You think you're better off because the savings in time was worth more than the $20 you shelled out to bribe the guy at the front of the line. The guy at the front of the line happens not to be in a hurry, and he's happy to get $20 and wait a little longer. And no one in between is any worse off, right? Don't try it at home, okay? A lot of people will be very unhappy with you because they will think that somehow that's unfair, okay? But that just is meant to illustrate that's what a Pareto improving trade is. Somebody's better off and nobody's worse off, okay? So the reasonable assumption is that all voluntary exchange is Pareto improving. Otherwise, it wouldn't occur. Two people wouldn't voluntarily to buy and sell some good, to be hired to work in a company, okay, to own shares of a particular corporation or whatever, unless each person thought that he was at least as well off from that transaction. Okay? Now, I say it's a reasonable assumption because there's a branch of economics which has challenged that view, has suggested that people don't always know what's in their self-interest. They make decisions that they really wouldn't want to do if they had the time or information or foresight to reflect. So it is an assumption. I'm going to take it as given for now, and maybe later we can talk about that whole issue of behavioral economics um, and libertarianism. But for the moment, okay, we assume that if people voluntarily do things, they think they're better off as a result. But tons of policies interfere with voluntary exchange, and so that's one aspect of evaluating those policies. So let's think about some examples. Okay? So vice prohibitions is an obvious one. Okay? It may be that okay, some people are harming their health by consuming drugs or alcohol or gambling or whatever. Okay? It may be that some people are sort of lowering their productivity and having some adverse effects on their future careers or whatever. But the people who buy drugs 
think that they're making themselves better off when they buy drugs. The people who sell drugs presumably think they're making themselves better off. So if you interfere with that, if you outlaw it, you are preventing exchanges, which the people involved regard as improving, okay, and that's a loss, unless, again, as an aside, you want to assert that people don't know what's in their, soul, their own interest. Libertarians typically don't want to make that assumption. Okay? OSHA regulation is another example. OSHA is Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It goes around to uh, businesses and says, you may not hire people in a way which is bad for their safety, even those people are willing to work in those unsafe conditions, fully informed and of their own free will. So if somebody is willing to climb up to the top of the Bay Bridge and paint the top of the Bay Bridge and risk falling into the bay or crashing onto the whatever, okay, and wants to do it at the wage the employer is offering, OSHA won't let that happen unless this person is strapped into appropriate safety gear and all that sort of thing. Now, it may well be that in the private market, most employees would demand many of those safety regulations. Nobody wants to fall off the Bay Bridge. So they would either use their own safety gear or they would demand a high enough wage that it was worth the risk or whatever. What OSHA regulation does is prevent okay, the employer who wants the bridge painted and the employee from engaging in a voluntary trade that involves some amount of risk okay, um, that OSHA thinks is inappropriate for people to take. Preventing Pareto improving trade. Collective bargaining laws, almost all interferences in the labor market like minimum wages and so on, are preventing Pareto improving exchange. Lots of people might want to work for a given company at something way below the union wage Okay, the government protection of the union that forces the union to the firm to negotiate with the union that doesn't let the firm send its workers over its its offices overseas that doesn't let the firm hire replacement workers during a strike that's preventing Pareto improving trade. So there are zillions more examples. Skip a few of them. Antitrust laws are preventing two companies that want to merge from doing something they think is in their same interest. Now, of course, there might be an argument that some of these policies are desirable for other reasons, even though they have these negative effects. But we shouldn't forget that they do clearly have these negative effects. So maybe antitrust laws are good for competition. Personally, don't think so. But at a minimum, they prevent some benefit to the companies that would like to merge and are prevented by the laws. Gun control is fairly straightforward. It's like the vice prohibitions. Um, entry barriers that prevent people who want to be in any trade, plumbers, uh, hairdressers, lawyers, doctors, all sorts of things that face licensing or other entry restrictions are made worse off. They're not allowed to transact with the people who want to transact with them. My wife and I happen to actually employ an um, unlicensed plumber. Always returns my calls. He always comes almost instantly. He never sends us a bill. <laughs> so he's a really great deal. But we mentioned this to these neighbors who were just horrified that we weren't employing this non-licensed plumber. And we're like, wait, he wants to work for us. We want him to work for us. It's a good deal for everybody. Why should policy interfere in that in any way, shape, or form? Uh, another one uh, I'll talk about briefly uh, close to home. When my son was 14, he wanted to get a job scooping ice cream at the local ice cream store. Of course, there are child labor laws that restrict how much you can work okay, during the school year, how many hours, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And he ended up not being able to do it because he didn't meet the restrictions. Maybe child labor laws on net are good. That's not my view, but maybe it's possible. But at a minimum, evaluation of those should recognize that some of the time, those laws are preventing employers who want to employ a young kid parents who want that kid to be employed, and a kid who wants to be employed. So all the people who potentially involved think they'd be better off Okay, and yet they're being prevented 
uh, by some sort of policy. Um, campaign finance regulation is, of course, another example. Donors want to give money to candidates, and the law is preventing them from doing it. Compulsory education is preventing parents who think their kids will be better off at home or apprenticing or doing something else uh, from having that choice, and so on. Okay? So a huge thing is, even if the intentions are good, even if there are some potentially good effects of some of these policies, they're always the people who would have been happily transacting who are prevented. Another broad category is dishonesty and disrespect for the law. Almost any government program can be avoided or evaded. Okay? Enforcement is always imperfect. The people involved in trying to enforce it frequently are less motivated than the people who are trying to evade it. I had a student a long time ago who had worked in the Coast Guard in the Caribbean, and he said he started out this, in this job thinking that, and they were, he was doing drug prohibition in the Caribbean back in the early 80s, and Reagan, just say no and all that. And he said he thought he was doing God's work, except that he gradually realized that they were out there chasing all of these traffickers from Venezuela, Peru, whatever, and that they would think they were going to make progress, but the traffickers always got a faster boat. And so then the Coast Guard said, oh, well, we need a faster boat too. And they go to Washington and they get the appropriations for a faster boat. And lo and behold, the traffickers have gotten a submarine. So the faster boat is no good whatsoever. So it's hard to enforce laws. And the people who are trying to do it, their livelihood is not really dependent on whether they effectively enforce the laws. With the people trying to evade the laws, like the traffickers, their livelihood very much is dependent on evading it. So they're probably better at it than the people trying to stop them. Because the enforcement is imperfect, people who obey lose out. If you think you shouldn't drink because the minimum legal drinking age is 21, you don't get to do something you might think is enjoyable. People who violate the law get to go ahead and have that enjoyment. If you think that you should obey some complicated provision of the tax code and waste a lot of your time doing it, okay, then you lose out relative to those people who realize they can probably get away with scamming the IRS and certain types of tax evasions, and on and on. Okay? So, when there's this massive noncompliance, everybody learns that laws are for suckers instead of learning, and they learn that laws are made to be broken, instead of policy fostering the attitude, we have a few rules, they're simple, everybody agrees on these few rules, and so everybody's going to be happy trying to enforce them and supporting uh, the enforcement of those laws. So again, there are zillions of examples. We'll talk about a few. Vice prohibitions is really obvious. I won't belabor that one. Okay, Speed limits. Okay, is a good example. Now, we all know that okay, most of us drive faster than the legal limit. Indeed, you can drive 10 miles over the limit in a lot of places and have all the other cars whizzing by you, okay, even though the limit is, is well below. Um, and kind of most people think that's on the whole a good thing. People get to work or where they're going faster because they ignore that. But it also just a little bit says, okay, we don't have to obey all the laws. We can kind of selectively choose which laws. And I think that that breeds the wrong attitude. And there's an alternative, which a few places in the US have had at times, and other countries have had, where the, the speed limit is the highest safe speed. Okay? So it doesn't say there's a specific number. And if you drive erratically, if you cause accidents, okay, then you have violated something. Or if a police officer thinks that you're clearly endangering other cars, then you can be stopped and given a ticket and so on. But there's no specific thing, so then you're not breaking encouraging everyone to break this norm when they do their everyday thing of driving to work. Safety and health regulation okay, is, again, an example. If you walk inside almost any restaurant in almost any city, 
you're going to walk right out the door out of the restaurant because the safety and all the health regulations are honored much more in the breach than the observance. Okay? As long as they cook the stuff, they kill most of the things that are growing in the kitchen, and it's okay. okay? But that teaches okay, restaurants, bribe the inspectors, fake it, okay, because of the complicated regulation that they're asked to comply with. Minimum wage laws and rent controls, lots of people pay employees under the book, lots of people do fancy deals with their landlords to pay somewhat more rent so they can stay in rent-controlled apartments. So that, again, rewards the dishonest okay, rather than the honest. Okay, affirmative action encourages employers to uh, do things like targeting a few minority hirings to make sure they comply, or at the other sometimes to make sure they don't have any so they can't be sued for firing people. It's going to reward, again, the dishonest uh, relative to the honest, uh, and so on and so forth. We talked about a couple of these already. Uh, campaign finance, I think, is an extreme example of this. It's impossible to enforce any, real, any kind of campaign finance regulation unless you're willing to totally throw the First Amendment out the window. Okay? And so there's always room for pushing the envelope. There's always room around any regulation that exists. And so the least honest politicians push the envelope the hardest and are rewarded by the existence of those laws. Um, so as a note, that all these examples, this issue of reading disrespect for the law, of rewarding the dishonest, implies that one measure of equity that you might think about, having people who are honest and want to obey the rules do better relative to people who want to break the rules, that's clearly worse under big government. So that's one aspect of the discussion of, is big government more equitable than small government? This argument clearly suggests small government is more equitable because then you're not rewarded uh, for being someone who cheats. Polarization. There's some interventions that push everybody in society to do the same thing or to accept the same rules in ways that are not particularly necessary. Okay? And on some issues, people clearly hold very strongly different views. Abortion is a classic example. And the range of those views, okay, a broad range of those views, are defensible. I'm not taking sides on that issue or, or any of these issues for the moment. But clearly, there's a broad range of positions one could take on, say, abortion that would be regarded as reasonable, as having some basis in, in caring and thought and rationality. If you impose one policy in these kind of issues on the whole country, you force the people who think it's bad to accept that they're living in a place that is telling them how to live, living in a place where their funds, their taxes may be used to fund activities such as Medicaid uh, abortions that they disagree with. So there's range for polarization, for people to be really angry because they all have to live by a very strong set uh, of rules. And that's, of course, especially the case if we're talking about federal policies. If each little city has a very strong rule about having lots of tennis courts or no tennis courts, people don't like it, go to the next city over. Your state has a policy about abortion say that you happen not to like, if it really bothers you, maybe you can move to a different state that has a different policy. But the federal government says everybody has to have exactly the same policy about abortion, okay, then the scope for the polarization okay, is greater. So think about examples. Okay, affirmative action okay, is a useful one. Affirmative action imposes the absence of discrimination, hiring, and all sorts of other things okay, on employers broadly, and okay, it imposes remedial measures to address the fact that uh, hiring may not be proportional to the representation of a minority in a particular uh, town or, or industry or whatever. And that 
is likely to generate polarization because it forces people to accept sort of a strong interference in their lives. And it was done by the federal government and it's imposed sort of universally as opposed to having been adopted by individual employers, many of whom believed in affirmative action because it was good business, many of whom believed in doing it because they thought it was just a nice thing to do. Classic example of that combining sort of both of those was uh, Branch Rickey and the Los Angeles Dodgers hiring Jackie Robinson completely a private act because one branch Ricky knew that there were a ton of super qualified black baseball players who were not in the major leagues. And two, he thought that the discrimination by the major leagues was evil and wrong. And he basically fixed it because as soon as he did it, a bunch of other owners, whatever their views on race said, boy, I better get on that train or my team is never going to win another game. So private actions okay, were much less polarizing, and nobody talks about that issue to any significant degree uh, in sports anymore because it was not done as part of a mandate. Public schools. If everybody has to go to, if there's mandatory education and everybody's going to public schools, those schools have to make decisions about controversial things, about teaching creationism versus natural selection and origin of species and all that. You have to decide whether everyone should learn a second language, whether that second language should be Spanish, whether you should spend lots of time in gym or hardly any time in gym, lots of time in art versus, okay? You're going to make people really unhappy because you're forcing the same thing on everyone and there's no need for it. It's entirely possible to help people who can't afford it get some education without having the government run uh, public schools. The classic example, as I mentioned, is polarization was the Roe v. Wade abortion decision. I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm going to take zero stand on the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade. But just think of it in terms of public policy. Imagine what would have happened if instead of having federal government, in effect, say that every state has to legalize abortion through the first uh, trimester and basically through the second trimester with some restrictions allowed. The federal government had done nothing. Well, in 19, late 1960s, a bunch of states had already, about 13 states, had already substantially modified their abortion laws to allow abortions, legal abortions, in the case of rape, incest, health of the mother. Okay, health of the mother in particular okay, is a fairly pliable standard, so many doctors could say, oh, I'm afraid my this particular woman is going to be depressed if I don't give her the abortion. Therefore, it's in the interest of the health of the mother. So there were more, lots more legal abortions already occurring before 1970. In 1970, five states, including two biggest states, California and New York, legalized abortion. And they were doing booming businesses, providing abortions to women from other states, such as Connecticut, uh, uh, Connecticut Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and so on. And it was clear that a bunch of other states were on the same path. So if the federal government hadn't intervened, we almost certainly would have seen a situation where three quarters to 90% of the states would have laws very similar to now, because that's what the population seems to want to vote for. A few states might have virtual bans on abortion, but they would be very small, low population states. And a few states would be in between with some sort of narrow relative. It's a flood warning? I don't see any water. <laughs> Oh, is it pouring from the thunderstorms? I guess. Um, so the most plausible story is that had the federal government never intervened, abortion would have ended up being fairly similar in terms of state-by-state -state policy to what we observe today, but without the extreme anger and bitterness between the pro-life and the pro-choice advocates. And so leaving that to the states okay, as a matter of public policy, again, I'm punting on the uh, constitutional issue, would have been a much better approach. Okay? Now, an interesting 
thing to compare to that. That could get annoying at some point. <laughs> Sorry? Okay, du duly noted. Uh, so an interesting example to think about in terms of polarization is the gay marriage decision from the Supreme Court. So some people, even some people who are pro-gay marriage, okay, but mainly people who were against the decision, said, oh, it was wrong for the Supreme Court to do this because it's imposing one thing on every state. We should let each state decide this on its own. And if it gradually does that, fine, but they won't have the strong reaction. You won't have the polarization of the kind I've sort of alluded to. So I don't think that's a completely irrational sort of perspective. Okay? But I would say there are a couple of things that uh, are potentially different. So first, in terms of the constitutionality, the Cato scholars, whom I trust totally, say that the Supreme Court decision was absolutely the right decision on the law. So that's, that's where I would come down, because I think we should obey the Constitution. Um, secondly, um, it's a situation where public opinion was already much, much more supportive and much more consistent in being pro-gay marriage than I think the extreme pro-choice view has been. So the scope for the polarization is probably less. But finally, I don't think it's the job of the Supreme Court to forecast public opinion and to do what's politically expedient or to make decisions about whether there will be more or less polarization. It's their job to interpret the Constitution, which they, I'm told from the people up on the seventh floor, uh, they did very well in this case. So some people have raised the same issue about gay marriage, about abortion. I don't think that's quite the right perspective for that issue. Okay, another broad kind of negative effect of big government is reduced self-reliance. There's tons of policies that send the message, people are stupid, they can't think for themselves, government needs to do it for them, okay? Now, there's no question a few people might benefit from being protected from themselves. Obviously, if we're talking about five-year-olds, we have no objection to the notion that their parents should have the authority to act paternally toward their children. And some restrictions on what parents can make their children do, even you know, libertarians are probably open to considering. Okay? But okay, you can't do this in a broad way for adults without creating this atmosphere of reduced self-reliance and personal responsibility, without sending the signal that people are stupid. And the big negative of that is, if people accept that, then they're not gonna use their brains even when they need to. So examples. Laws against false and misleading advertising. The standard view is without such laws, consumers would be duped hopelessly over and over again. The libertarian view is, if you don't realize, you're not smart enough to think that when people advertise stuff, they're trying to sell it to you. And when they show some attractive male or female doing the activity that uses the good they're trying to sell, driving the car, putting on, you don't realize that putting on that makeup isn't going to instantly make you look okay, like the model in the ad and so on and so forth. Then there's nothing that policy can possibly do to protect you from yourself. Okay? And these restrictions have costs. Okay? So, um, and one cost is teaching people that they're not smart enough to think by themselves. Prohibitions on bad stuff like drugs okay, sends the same kind of message. And in particular, a prohibition says drugs are way worse for you than legal goods like alcohol or tobacco. Yet all the substantive evidence says exactly the opposite. What are the substances that regular use of causes some long-term fatal disease? Heroin? No. Cocaine? No. Marijuana? No. Alcohol? Yes. Okay. Cirrhosis of the liver, possibly throat cancer, a few other things. 
Tobacco, absolutely. Lung cancer, emphysema, to some degree heart disease, and so on. So we have it exactly wrong in attempting to send people, keep people away from doing the wrong things. We have prioritized exactly the wrong substances. Nutritional guidelines, same kind of thing. I strongly, strongly recommend a new book called The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Tickholz or something like that about the history of the saturated fat and versus uh, heart disease debate. It's just unbelievable how much lying, cheating, and stealing went on in promoting that view. Um, and again, this is a case where the government's trying to help you. Everybody sheepishly follows all this stuff. You hear all these people say, oh, I, you know, I ate you know, the appropriate number of veggies and blah, blah, and granola, all that today. And they just have it completely wrong. There's no evidence to support okay, eating that way as opposed to a much, much broader. Many more examples I won't belabor. Regulation of decency content on television, child labor laws and compulsory education. Social Security says you're too stupid to know you should save for your retirement, so the government's going to force you to do it or do it for you. Safety regulation and occupation says people won't think about using safety goggles on their own, being strapped in appropriately if it's a high building or whatever on their own. Only if the government comes in will those sorts of things happen. Food labeling laws, same thing. Licensure restrictions into medicine and the law. Okay? People won't ask around. They won't find good doctors on their own. They won't use consumer reports type mechanism on their own. They have to make sure, the government has to make sure that only good doctors have been licensed to practice medicine. Of course, the evidence suggests that licensing hasn't, on average, improved the quality of doctors. It's just restricted the quantity and driven up the price, thereby making everybody uh, worse off. Okay? So tons of examples of how government turns people into sheep. Another broad category is thought control. Now, when I talk to lefty friends, I can get away with a lot of the things that I've said so far. But when I say thought control and that big government leads to thought control, then they think I'm just some crazy, like, conspiracy, you know, I've read too much George Orwell's 1984 and stuff like that. Okay? But I'm not saying that government involvement instantly or quickly leads to some super totalitarian state where, as in 1984, you have some monitor in every room monitoring everything you do. Although, we're not so far away, actually, now that I think about it. But I'm saying something milder, but nevertheless important. Every time the government intervenes, it's taking a stand on some aspect of truth. If the government funds education, it has to define education. Okay? It has to say what Okay, you qualifies as a public school. What is taught in that public school? It's taking a stand that a certain amount of reading, writing, and arithmetic combined with a certain amount of gym and a certain amount of arts is the right thing to do. That's a way of controlling our thoughts. That's pushing us to believe that this way is the right way as opposed to a bunch of other ways. And there's perfectly plausible that that's not right for everybody, that tons of 12-year-olds would be better off in ski school or English or a French immersion school or science-only school or whatever Okay, but the government is pushing everyone to think this. When my daughter was like six or seven, and she heard me ranting about some of this stuff, okay, both my kids heard a lot of ranting at the dinner table, um, she said, but dad, if it weren't for public schools, I wouldn't be able to get an education. It's like the existence of the public school planted in her brain the idea that without government, there are no schools. That's fundamentally wrong and evil. Okay? Obviously, there can be schools without government, but she was brainwashed just by their existence to thinking you had to have them. 
when government regulates, it's taking a stand on the way markets are operating. It's pushing everybody to believe that there's not enough safety or not enough health or not enough whatever in some particular market. That's a way of tilting the way you think about the world. And the more agencies there are in Washington, the more everyone is conned into thinking, oh, there must be a lot of market failures everywhere. Otherwise, there wouldn't be all these Washington, D.C. agencies. Instead of thinking, oh, there must be a lot of, sort of bureaucrats you know, lining their own pockets. Otherwise, that's why there's so many agencies. If you tax corporations, you're promoting an untruth. You're promoting the idea that something other than a person can pay taxes, Mitt Romney notwithstanding. Okay? If you can't shake hands with it, it doesn't pay taxes in any economic sense. Corporations are owned by people. But having a corporate income tax says, oh, there's this cool other thing that we can tax and get all this money from to fund all of our redistribution or other government projects that's not people. But of course, that's false. Okay, so the government is perpetuating uh, a falsehood. Campaign finance regulation okay, is perpetuating the idea that money corrupts politics. Okay, well, of course it's possible that money corrupts politics, and I think every libertarian would be happy to sign on to many examples where we think money did play a negative role in politics, but they're saying that the role of money is always negative, and therefore there should be little or none of it, they don't have any evidence for that. And clearly, in many cases, money does a good thing in politics. When businesses that are about to be regulated pay their lobbyists to try to stop the stupid regulation, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And so the campaign finance regulation is trying to force a particular view of what money does on everything. Okay? So even without 1984-like things, even without explicit thought control, interventions promote okay, a particular way uh, of thinking. Okay, last thing on the set of bad things that government do, ooh, I'm really short on time, um, is governments expand too much. Okay, the libertarian no intervention view, of course, sounds extreme to most people, and clearly markets are not perfect, so perhaps small interventions make sense. That's undoubtedly true in a few cases, but small interventions don't say small. We saw that okay, on some of my slides that showed the growth of government. Okay, we know that all entities try to grow in size or scope, Okay? So interventions that might have been well-intentioned okay, initially okay, certainly end up being too big in many, many cases. So one or two examples. Um, Civil Rights Act went from doing something that was certainly uh, well-motivated and desirable and making sure that African-Americans weren't discriminated against to forcing all colleges and universities to have the same number of athletic slots for men versus women. Okay? You may agree or disagree with that, but certainly it's a big expansion and something nobody would contemplated when we created the Civil Rights Act. Okay? The Pure Food and Drug Act, when it was passed, just said that okay, people, uh, manufacturers of foods and drugs had to label. You, there are all sorts of ingredients on those labels in the early days, in 1906, that are now banned. There was heroin, there was cocaine, there was all sorts of stuff. Okay? That was all totally fine as long as it was labeled. Indeed, at one point, the Government went after Coca-Cola for not having coca leaf anymore in Coca-Cola because they said the name was misleading because <laughs> it was called Coca-Cola and so it should have coca in it or change its name. So there are zillions of other examples I won't go into because I'm slightly short of things that have expanded enormously. The number of people getting Social Security and the level of benefits has gone up. Medicare, when it was first created, was forecast that it would be spending by the year 2000 90 billion a year was at three, four hundred billion a year. So things get bigger and bigger. Antitrust has expanded enormously in scope, okay, and so on and so forth, okay? So 
One, lat, one illustration of that, this is from my colleague at Cato, Andrew Colson. The blue line shows you expenditure per pupil from 70 to roughly the present in public education. It's gone up by a factor of almost 200%. So again, maybe you think that some government subsidy for education is a good idea. There's an arguable case for that. But it absolutely has expanded in a way which is hard to justify. The other lines, the, the orange line is employee, employment in education. And all the other lines down at the bottom that are completely horizontal, those are test scores. So this is also information that more expenditure doesn't necessarily get you good results. OK, summary so far. Interventions has this huge range and scope and potential for bad consequences, which creates a presumption against. But people can disagree, can, excuse me, can agree on the consequences, yet disagree on the policies because of their different values. So I finally want to address that directly. So what could the objectives for policy be? Okay, there's no theorem. There's no law of nature that tells us what exactly policy should be trying to do. Okay, so let's, let's sort of think about that. We go to course 30. OK, right. Um, so one goal could be economic efficiency. Biggest possible size economic pie, maximum output per unit of inputs, GDP per capita, whatever you want to sort of focus on. That's clearly a possible goal. Okay? A different way would be not to talk about outcomes so much, but more about what the rules are and what things the policies can't do. Policies can't interfere with our rights. Okay? So there should be minimal interference or maximum liberty. Okay? Um, and a third okay, is we should care to some degree or entirely about some notion of equity, whether you call that fairness, morality, justice, or something like that. So clearly, lots of people have views on which of these should be the most important. Okay? And uh, they think that their different views has a lot to do with which policies uh, they endorse. So I want to think about the implications of each of these for big versus small government. So first, on the efficiency versus liberty, I'm basically just going to assert that as best I can figure out, to a first approximation, they're the same. Personally, I can't, you know, if you think about what intervention does, it creates some bad consequences economically, so that's inefficiency, and it interferes with individual liberty, so I can't think of any policies that are pro-efficiency but anti-liberty or vice versa. If someone can, I'd be delighted to hear about it later, but to me, that's really not a debate. That's not a, that's not a difference. Almost anything that does one is going to do the other. So we're really talking about efficiency slash liberty versus some measure of equity. Okay. Now, on equity, the standard view is that policy faces a trade-off between equity and efficiency. And you can describe that in many ways. I'm going to just describe it in terms of the distribution of income, because that's simple. And that's what I think most people are actually most concerned about most of the time. So lots of people think that we should try to have a equal, or at least a more equal, with apologies to the grammar nuts, because you can't be more equal, um, distribution of income, a more even distribution of income than what would be generated by the laissez-faire outcome. Even if that would generate a bigger economic pie, they still think it should be distributed differently. And that seems to imply that view that government should redistribute income from richer to poor, sort of more generally. So to think about that, okay, I first want to say that there are two kinds of policies that have significant effects on the distribution of income. First, there are those that are explicitly trying to redistribute income. 
welfare, Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, so on and so forth. There's a whole bunch of policies, mainly federal, to some degree at the state level, whose goal is explicitly trying to transfer resources from better off to less well off. Then there's tons of other policies that have effects on the distribution of income in ways I'll get into in a minute, okay, but that have some other goal, but nevertheless okay, are also simultaneously, inadvertently or not, going to affect the distribution of income. So leave those aside okay, for the moment and think just about policies that explicitly try to redistribute. What are the arguments for doing that? So one argument is the utilitarianism argument. Everybody gets utils from having more income or more wealth. Okay? People have declining util marginal utility. That is, Bill Gates doesn't get much extra utility from another dollar of income because he can already buy everything he wants. Whereas a starving man gets a lot of utility from an extra dollar of income because he can buy a sandwich. Okay? So the notion is that as your income goes up, the benefits you get, the satisfaction, the enjoyment you can get from extra income gets smaller and smaller and smaller. If you accept all those assumptions, then it seems to follow that if we transfer resources from Bill Gates to someone who's poor, we have increased aggregate utility because when we took $1,000 from Bill Gates, we hardly affected his utility at all, but we made a very poor person a lot better off because $1,000 means a lot to someone who initially has zero or a very small amount. So the problem with that view is it's logically consistent in the model that economists use, but it's all assumptions. It's all assumption that we can model people as having utility functions. In particular, economic theory says explicitly, and this is a slight um, response that a gentleman earlier asked me whether high fancy fallutin economics was good or bad for the libertarian view. One thing that all economics professors teach is they're, they're, you cannot talk about utility in a cardinal way. You can't measure it. You can't add it up across people. You can only talk about it ordinarily. That is, something may give you more or less utility. People can rank which things they prefer or not prefer, but there's no legitimate basis for redistribution based on the utilitarian argument, even in the standard textbook model. So I don't think that's a good argument at all. I'm just going to dismiss that. A second argument, which is plausible, uh, based on compassion, says everybody would like to live in a society where people who are really unfortunate get taken care of, don't have to suffer, and especially they would apply that to children, but to adults as well. Okay? Now, that view, and it also says, that view, that if we leave that to the market, it might be underprovided. Why? Because people will free ride. You might say, eh, I'm not going to help take care of that person who's lying in the street or who's begging on the corner because somebody else will do it. I will free ride on their charitable instincts. And if everybody thinks that way, then in fact, you might not get very much charitable activity from purely private mechanisms. Okay? So that's a logically consistent view. But it relies on some assumptions. It relies on the assumption that people are going to try to free ride, as opposed to people are going to donate to charitable activities and try to help their fellow human beings, even if it's going to, some of the benefits are going to spill over to all the other people who are now happier that people aren't starving in the street. Okay? And so that view, while logical, is amenable to looking at evidence. And I'm going to look at some evidence okay, in a minute. Okay? Um, third argument is known as the veil of ignorance argument. It says that if you asked anybody before that person was born, okay, before that person fig found out whether he or she would be rich, talented, athletic, musical, whatever, and asked, would you, not knowing how things are going to turn out, be happy to give up a little bit of your consumption in your future life in exchange for knowing you weren't going to have really low consumption, 
would you, in effect, want to buy insurance against being born okay, with characteristics that don't lead to high income or high life satisfaction or whatever? Okay, many people would want to buy such insurance behind the elevator. So that's also a plausible story. That's the John Rawls sort of framework. Okay? But again, it relies on some assumptions. It relies on the assumption that private charity wouldn't take care of those people okay, anyway. It assumes that government redistribution actually works in helping the people uh, who are affected. And it sets aside what the cost might be of attempting to do that redistribution. So just summarizing that for a second, I'm fully agreeing that there are logical arguments you could give for why private charity might be insufficient relative to what a society would ideally like. Okay? But those stories rely on some assumptions which are amenable to looking at data okay? and th thinking about whether they're quantitatively important. Okay? So first, this chart shows you something you've seen before, but with a little more detail. The spending of the US government okay, over the last uh, 200 or so years on defense, social security, Medicare, and interest. And it's a little hard to see the details here, but obviously for a long time, almost all our spending was on national defense, okay, and a little bit of interest. And then, I've just now gone ahead 50 years and blown up the graphs, so you can see it better. Over the last 50 or so years, 50, 60 years, defense has gotten much, much smaller, and spending has been replaced, okay, hugely by spending on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Medicaid is not in that picture, but it would, it would show the same sort of thing. So in fact, we are spending a lot on redistribution. Okay? Um, if you added up all the money that the federal government is spending on redistribution between Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, public schools, uh, UI, housing, and said you wanted to redistribute that to the bottom 10% of the income distribution, would add up to about $60,000 per person. Per person. Okay, that's a huge amount. So first thing I want to emphasize is the government is redistributing a lot. Okay? So that's useful okay, to keep in mind. Second, okay, despite the fact that the government is redistributing a lot, and you might think that would get most people to say, well, given the government is doing all this, I'm definitely going to free ride. I just no reason for me to engage in any charitable activity if the government is spending all this money. In fact, people do a lot of charitable activity. So this is the volunteer rate in the United States over the last roughly 30 years, various years selected, almost always above 25%. Okay? So tons of people are spending their time, as most of you know from your friends and relatives, things they do, volunteering in soup kitchens, in churches, in all sorts of other sort of activities, okay? out of the goodness of their heart because they want to help their fellow man. And they're not, even though they could say themselves, geez, government, I'm already doing this via my taxes, so I'm not going to bother doing any of it. Okay? Similarly, this shows you in the blue line the amount of private philanthropy in the US as a percentage of GDP going back to 1920 line, despite the fact that government charity in the form of Social Security and Medicare in particular has gone up tremendously, there's lots of private giving. The amounts there are quite substantial, right? That's 1.5% roughly of GDP in private giving every year, that's a big number because GDP is a huge number, so even 1% of that okay, is a lot of income. So people, the, the basic assumptions of the models of the stories for why we should have a lot of redistribution, that people won't do it on their own even though they would like it to happen, is clearly not exactly right. There's clearly a ton of private charitable activity uh, despite that. Now another issue for the redistribution positions is that Okay, maybe all this spending isn't all that effective. 
So this graph shows you real per capita anti-poverty spending in the US from 1962 to 2009. It's clearly going up, and it's going up at a pretty fast rate. Okay? The other line, the red line, shows you the poverty rate in the US, which does indeed come down okay, during the first 10 or so years, and has done basically nothing since. So between approximately 67, 68, and the present, we've seen a tremendous rise in anti-poverty spending and no measurable impact on the poverty rate in the US. So that challenges the assumption implicit, of course, in the pro-redistribution view, that spending more will actually help poor people. Okay? This chart and other sorts of analyses don't suggest that very much at all. Lots of spending with minimal results. Finally, there's the question of the costs. Okay? This graph, which is a little hard to see, but it shows you for a bunch of countries, okay, their per capita income in logs going back to the 1870s approximately. And what it turns out is that the US is the black line. You can certainly see at the top, post-war, it's the black line up there. Okay? We start out at the beginning a little behind the UK, but then we overtake the UK shortly before World War I and have been above them pretty much ever since. The countries are converging. They're getting closer and closer together in terms of per capita income up to World War II not at a super rapid rate, but a little, then World War II sort of messes that up big time. Huge drops in per capita income in a bunch of countries because they were the countries destroyed by the war, France, Germany, and so on. Then they all start to catch up again. The first half of World War II looks like everybody's going to get back up to the US rate of growth of per capita GDP, except it stops. It stops in the mid-1960s. What happens in the mid-1960s is European economies all adopt much more interventionist, much more redistributive, much more regulatory policies. And so they all seem stuck at similar growth rates, but at permanently lower levels relative to the US, okay, because they've adopted these very, very redistributionist policies. And as redistribution as the US is, these other countries are more so. So it makes sense that it would show up if there are costs of redistribution okay, in their GDP. So that chart is just meant to illustrate, and I'll show you one more which does it in a few minutes, that redistribution has costs, so there should be some thought to that in deciding how much. Even if you're in favor, okay, even if you think these arguments are valuable in saying we should, the government should do something, you have to be temperate. You can't always say that more redistribution is better because there will be clear costs. Okay, the last part of this story is to note that there are tons of other policies that aim to redistribute besides the ones we've been talking about so far that explicitly try to redistribute. But most of those redistribute in ways that are clearly not equitable, just, or anything like that. Why? Because interventions, all kinds of interventions, create winners and losers. Some of those are intentional, some of those are not, okay? But intervention creates all this wasted effort to be a winner, and that's of even further cost. So what do I mean by this? It's useful to think about examples. Say the government's going to build roads or hospitals or schools. Somebody gets the contract to build those buildings or roads or whatever. Those particular contractors get a lot of business. They tend to get rich relative to all the others. And the ones that do end up being cronies inside connected to the government contractors. So they do really well. So there's an arbitrary redistribution across some uh, road builders and some who are not. Government airport security one of my favorite pet peeves until I got TSA pre-check, which certainly made my life a lot better, although not it's a long way to go. Um, TSA okay, 
is contract with a particular company to buy all of those scanning machines, those x-ray machines, et cetera, in the airports. So the company that got that contract made a fortune by getting this government contract because the government was running airport security instead of leaving it to all the uh, individual airlines and airports. Okay? In addition, the companies that make all those machines are going to come along. They did come along a few years ago and say, you know what? The machine you're using now, it's no good. We have this much better machine. It's kind of expensive, but you need a lot of these machines, and you should replace all your existing machines with these new machines because they'll be even better. So the fact that the government is doing this contracting is going to help some businesses, some sectors, get rich relative to others. Same thing happens with clean air rules because of the companies that make the scrubbers that the government has decided are legitimate to go on the tops of stacks of manufacturing plants. Medicare reimbursement. Some companies get to write all those checks okay, and take care of all the Medicare reimbursements. They make a ton of money relative to other similar firms that weren't insiders, that weren't connected, and so on. There are dozens, hundreds probably, of small consulting firms that do nothing but help hospitals figure out how to manipulate their Medicare reimbursement filing so they maximize okay, the revenue they get back okay, from the federal government. Okay? Those people would have less income if it weren't for the government doing all this Medicare. High stakes testing creates windfalls for the companies that write the tests. Just Say No campaigns creates windfalls for Madison Avenue uh, ad uh, agencies okay, to do this is your brain on drugs and just say no and all that sort of thing. Um, state university tuition policies okay, charge the same tuition to people whether their income is $10 billion or their income is $30,000. Okay? So that's redistributing in a completely nutty way. Um, licensing restrictions we already talked about. Uh, unions, minimum wages, rent controls, all of those raise income some, of some people but lower incomes of other people who don't get jobs. The point is that all of these things are going to affect who gets what and how much in ways that have nothing to do with merit, in ways that are based on connections and all that sort of thing. Okay? So in terms of wanting the distribution of income to be reasonable, to be based on merit, okay, big government is going to do much more harm okay, than anything that the market does. Even if you accept the goal of flattening the distribution, that policy has real cost and there's limited evidence for effectiveness, Tons of interventions reward birth connections, political, uh, political views, dishonesty, luck, etc. So equity, in my view, is still another argument for small government because it avoids all these unwarranted redistributions. Now, just to bring all that home, the last graph, this shows you world economic history in one picture. It shows you per capita consumption from the year 1000 to roughly the present. And so you can see that the world goes along in this trap, the Malthusian trap, of no progress in per capita income until approximately 1800 when the Industrial Revolution comes along. And then there's this huge divergence. So there are these two lines on that graph, the one that goes way up to the top, and then you can see there's a little one that kind of continues to go down. So which countries form which of those two lines? Well, it's the countries in Western Europe to some extent Japan, a couple others, the ones that, roughly speaking, embrace capitalism, okay, that sh show this enormous increase in standards of living, and it's the ones that maintained or adopted redistributionist, very uh, totalitarian or otherwise big government policies that show the, big de the, the, de the continued declines, the absence of any growth okay, on the right-hand side. So it tells you that there is a huge cost 
to big government versus small government, the places that maintain not what we would consider small enough government, but comparatively speaking, small government, are the countries that have been able to take advantage of the technology and the Industrial Revolution and have had these enormous gains in well-being. Okay, so I'm basically done. Let me just say to lots of people, my relatives, lots of my friends, lots of my colleagues, libertarian land sounds bizarre to reporters and people. They all sort of react by thinking that we're just crazy. How could you possibly suggest rolling government back to the 790s? They think we would have a chaotic, disease-infested society with the rich elites living off the poor and so on and so forth. My claim is that consequential libertarian predicts dramatically otherwise and that the evidence supports this view very consistently. That small government is far better for people's standard of living and for any reasonable notions of equity. Okay? It doesn't say it gets you an even distribution of income, but I don't think there's any reason to care about the evenness of the distribution, only about whether the people who get higher incomes are getting it for reasons of talent, merit, and so on. Okay? So my bottom line is simple. Small government's not perfect. Nothing is perfect except circles, okay? but small government is better than the alternatives. Thank you very much for listening. Please. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, so you talked about um, the so efficiency and liberty and how there didn't seem to be any contradiction in uh, any circumstance for those two. And, Obviously, and none I, I can think of. <laughs> obviously, obviously, I agree in the vast majority of cases. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Um, but let's take, for instance, um, you know, some, some thought experiments in the free rider problem, such as fisheries that do better when you, you know, have small quotas that are perhaps enforced by laws um, versus just fishing it to oblivion, and then you lose this resource that needs to replenish itself. Is there a, a, you know, a consequentialist argument for why those type of laws would be necessary? So um, I didn't talk about it, maybe should have. Libertarians have absolutely no problem, indeed they're strong advocates, of having government define and enforce property rights. Okay? That's totally a legitimate function of government. Now, there's some more detailed questions of exactly which property rights and exactly how you enforce them, but broad brush, absolutely no problem. And indeed, by defining the property rights, you make things much better and eliminate the need for all sorts of other interventions. So fisheries would be an example, except that in some settings, it is indeed extremely hard okay, to define the property rights and enforce them in a reasonable way. It's hard to divide up the fish in the ocean to stay in certain parts of the ocean so that you can buy and sell the rights to that part of the ocean. So those small quotas are a crude way of trying to get to an assignment of property rights. So I don't think the libertarian should necessarily have a big trouble with those. Now, the deep devil may be in the details. They may in practice work terribly, and we'd be better off doing nothing. But I don't think that that's a major challenge, because it's basically a way to get to an assignment of property rights. Yes? I want to ask you about one of the examples that you've given, um, specifically about uh, false advertising, because uh, that's one that I would think many consequential and non-consequential libertarians would say is just fraud, and that they're trying to bring you into their store by claiming this price is much lower than they're actually going to offer, or something like that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So generally speaking, libertarians do think that the government should play some role in disciplining to preventing fraud, okay? and I'm not disagreeing with that, but I still think it's worth asking about which particular kinds of fraud it should try to prevent and whether the treatment is worse than the disease. Um, so in the case of false and misleading advertising, okay, there's many mechanisms that will help people avoid big mistakes. 
Okay? Other than government, there's advertising from competitors. One person says, you know, my product is great, my cigarettes, okay, smoke my cigarettes, they won't kill you as fast as the other guys, okay, which is exactly what happened in the late 1950s, okay, are, you know, may or may not be false, but they were alerting everyone to the dangers of cigarettes. And so when the government came in and prevented any health claims in cigarette advertising, okay, because those couldn't be proven, so they might have been misleading, it made people worse off. So maybe there's a case that that's a kind of theft that we should worry about. But I think that on net, people will do better by being on their own, by using consumer reports type things, by having competitors, you know, debunk, debunk each other's claims, and so on. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm a big fan of Russ Roberts' Econ Talk podcast, and I heard a recent theory called Kludgeocracy, which explains why the government pretty much wallpapers over the same room repeatedly rather than painting it a new color, which means that, for example, we do in health insurance mandate instead of just increasing Medicare to help the poor. So um, regarding your slides about small interventions, I'm not so confident that we can ever hope to get libertarian reforms because if we ask the government for legislation, everybody who's in the separation of powers along the way needs to get some payoff. So as long as we're not the pluralistic voting bloc, um, how can we ever get a libertarian policy? Uh, so I think we talked about this a little in the beginning. It's going to be very hard to ever get the hardcore libertarian land policies. Okay? We may not even be able to nudge back the existing policies to be less bad. But we have to hope that we can at least keep them from getting worse as quickly as they would get worse without our efforts. So it's sort of a hard thing to keep in your head, is on the one hand, be completely committed and dedicated to fighting every single day for more liberty, for less government, and so on. And yet, realize you're, you know, you're fighting City Hall, literally, okay? and it's going to be a tough slog. But libertarians, liberty generally, have had a fair number of victories, too. I mean, it's not as though it's unambiguously negative. Okay, if you look around the rich countries, most people can choose their occupations, choose their spouses, choose their religion, you know, choose what kind of education they want their kids to get within some, you know, it's not perfect, but it's not horrible either. And there are some places in the world still that are really, really horrible, and have been tons of places in the past that were really horrible. So I think the glass is half full. It's not full, but it's, but it's half full. Uh, you didn't differentiate between various welfare programs and all, and Social Security and mm -hmm. Medicare, where uh, worse than all, uh, people over their lifetime of work have contributed to those programs, and just wanted to know if you'd make some comments about the differential. Um, so I sort of don't really want to accept that people have contributed to those programs in the way that people think. Social Security or Medicare. Their money that they paid in taxes went back out the door of the Social Security Trust Fund within a year or two of when it went in to pay for the benefits of somebody who was already retired. And so it's not a savings program. It's a transfer program. It would be much more transparent to blow up the trust fund and say we're paying all Social Security benefits out of general tax revenues. Okay? But Congress created that way to con people into thinking that they were saving for their own retirement. Yes. Okay, so I know there are a lot of bad welfare programs like the one you mentioned that aren't really working. Are there any good ones that could work, like a universal basic income? I think there are ones that are certainly less bad. So a really, really simple and not very generous negative income tax, especially if it were a state-level policy, not a federal policy, 
know, some libertarians would be okay with, or at least they would be much, much happier with in the current. So not only is current one, you, first of all, you have to talk about the generosity, not just the structure, because the generosity makes a huge difference to how much negative uh, impact it can have. But the current structure is also incredibly messy and complicated and wasteful. So if we could structure it better as in a negative income tax, and if we could get the amount to be moderate instead of as generous as it is now, certainly in the right direction. Yes. Uh, you want to roll back the government to 1790s, you said. If we were actually put in a position where we could do that, at what speed would you want that transition to occur? Um, I think for the vast majority of things, you can do it pretty fast. I mean, this is all completely pie in the sky because we know none of that is going to happen. But the, something like Medicare, Social Security, maybe to ease the transition, the government, federal government should simply sort of scale it back 10% a year for 10 years and transfer that money to the states and let the states take it over. But things like drug prohibition, you should repeal tomorrow. Many of the regulations, you should just repeal tomorrow. There probably are some cases where a slower transition is defensible because it would be disruptive to a lot of people, and maybe that's not quite fair. Yes? Sorry, hard to reach the mic here. Um, so one of the problems to me with a consequentialist case for liberty is that it seems to implicitly accept the, the assumption that the government is licensed to do whatever it believes is most beneficial to its citizens. Um, so do you believe that there should be any absolute and inviolable limitations on what government can do? I mean, I probably do believe that. I would like to believe that there are huge limitations to what the, for example, the ones in the federal constitution, that the federal government's powers are only the 13 enumerated powers and no more, and that we interpret things like the Commerce Clause the way I and many libertarians think it was meant to be interpreted. But that ship sailed long ago. So relying on just on notions of rights or constitutional limits doesn't seem to do very well in terms of actually limiting government. So I guess I would say that the consequentialist arguments are an incredibly useful complement to the rights-based arguments. There's not one versus the other. I think they need to go, and the constitutional argument, they need to go together because unfortunately none of them, singly or a combination, has kept us from getting much bigger government. And so we need to use them all. Thank you. Yes. How do you deal with the uh, challenge that in a knowledge economy and increasing specialization that more and more people believe that they are not expert enough to make decisions and they, you know, they vote for people who promise that, you know, we will help you understand, you know, about drugs, about the Iran nuclear deal, about healthcare, whatever. And, and, and people are voting for this because they feel it is beyond their means to have the sophisticated knowledge to make decisions. I, that's the last, okay. I think that there's understandable that people are nervous that technology is passing it by. Okay? But if we go to specific interventions, I think that almost all of the interventions that attempt to protect people from themselves or to be paternalistic in some way actually make people worse off. And so we should think about what the actual effects are, not just do these feel-good things that seem to respond to the alleged scariness of the new technology. I also think that if we'd had this discussion about the new technology making everybody unemployed 20 years ago, it would have sounded the same. 50 years ago, it would have sounded the same. I'm not, I think that the, 
the Luddite fear comes back from time to time, I'm not at all convinced that it's right. The, the problem is that the narrative then hits the tennis ball back and says, you all have to figure it out. And, and, and lots of people just aren't willing or able to do that. No, the narrative says, if someone says we should have nutritional guidelines because it will help people have better diets, I'm saying let's look at what these nutritional guidelines were. Let's look at what the science was that government bureaucrats used to implement those guidelines. Let's look at whether they actually made people healthier and find that they didn't. So those guidelines were a bad idea. So instead of one bad policy imposed on everybody or pushed on everybody, we have a big diversity. And yes, some people will do stupid things under that diversity of choice. That's what liberty is, of course, is having the ability to make bad choices, not just good choices, but also the attempt to stop it is hurting a lot of people, too. Thank you. Thank you very much.